So on the ocean surface, there is often great agitation, but underneath the water becomes increasingly calm to the point of being virtually still. Have you ever watched a documentary and as they're diving deeper and deeper, and if there's no lovely like aquarium music in the background, it actually gets very, very silent and very, very still. Survey teams dredging this calm area of the ocean floor have found animal and plant remains that appear to have been undisturbed for hundreds of years. This cushion of the sea, as it is called by oceanographers, is like the peace experienced by Christians. Regardless of the anxiety and trouble in a Christian's surroundings, there is a cushion of peace in his soul. That's because he knows the Prince of Peace and has within him the spirit of peace given by the God of peace. So this morning, if you haven't turned already, let's turn in the word of God to John 14. I am going to read the whole passage. There will be certain verses that we park for a moment and certain verses that we are um, quickly going to cover. But I think there's great value in looking at it as a whole. So John 14, I'm going to start in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, very important phrase, said to him, Lord, 
what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Ladies, have you ever longed to just be a fly on the wall? as Christ is talking to his disciples. To see them in a setting without all the crowds pushing in and shoving each other out of the way to strain to hear what Christ has to say. A quiet moment when it's just our Savior and the ones closest to him as he teaches them about himself and his Father in heaven. Just a glimpse to hear what it's like, the heart of our Savior as they're face to face. The Apostle John is one of the only Gospels that gives us such a large portion of discussion of this type. Our text in John 14 starts in, in the middle of the discussion happening between Christ and his disciples as they sit eating the Passover together, which we now know as the Last Supper. To see the beginning of this discussion, which is also called the Upper Room Discourse, we have to flip back to John 13, and it continues all the way straight through to the end of chapter 18. Sometimes it's very helpful reading this week. I would recommend to you sit down in one sitting, start at 13.1 and go all the way through 18, recognizing this is one solid discussion. It's very helpful. But today, we're just going to go back to the beginning and take a peek at that. So um, I'm going to read John 13, 1 through 5, if you want to look at it with me. But the beginning of this discussion, John reveals what's going on. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now imagine, Christ knew that God had given everything into his hands. The pinnacle of his time on earth is getting ready to be at hand. It was almost time to go back to the Father, to be seated at his right hand in glory. He could have stood up, and demanded that right then and there the disciples bow down and worship him and praise him, pay him homage, and he would have been perfectly right to do so. And yet, what do we see our Savior doing? Instead, he takes a towel and a basin of water and performs the lowliest of tasks for 
all his disciples, which nobody else took it on themselves to do. And just like Yvonne mentioned last week, this is not a pleasant task. We're in the dusty Middle East. What is the main mode of transportation on the roadways? It's animals. What do animals leave behind them as they walk along a roadway? So this is animals carrying cargo, animals carrying people, so possibly manure, dust, grime, all collected on the feet because they are wearing sandals. So only the lowliest of servants were used to accomplish this task. And yet the king of glory bends down to wash his followers' feet in an act of love and a living example to us. He then exposes his betrayal and his betrayer to his disciples. But nobody suspected that it was Jesus Iscariot when he gets up and leaves because Christ has told him, what you do, do quickly. Everybody thinks, oh, he must be going on an errand for Christ. That's their immediate. Nobody was like, oh, yeah, totally know it's Judas. No. In another, in another passage, we hear them saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I? It was not obvious to them who the betrayer was. Then after um, Judas Iscariot leaves, he then turn, Christ turns his attention to his true followers and has a comforting heart-to-heart -heart with them to prepare them for what's about to happen. He reveals to them that he's going away and that they will not be able to follow him. Remember, though, what was our Savior's first words to these disciples as he calls them to be his disciples? Come, follow me. Every single one of them had left their homes, their careers, their livelihoods, their friends, and their family to follow Christ. They have literally been following a rabbi or a teacher in Israel. Your disciples would literally follow around behind you as you're talking, as you're teaching for three years. They followed him. They have listened to him. They have learned from them, him. They have ministered with him. They have watched him do signs and wonders, proving his deity. They have done all these things for three years, and now he's telling them he is leaving. And we know in the end of chapter 13, Peter tries to argue with him. Can we just pause for a minute? He's arguing with Christ. But we can't really point the finger too long, do we? How many times do we argue with God? God, are you sure this is the best thing for me? Are you sure? So he's arguing with Christ. And then Christ reveals that Peter is going to deny Christ. Peter's one of the inner three, like the closest of the close. And now Christ has just said, you're going to deny me. So this is not exactly a peaceful moment in the disciples' lives, is it? You can feel the tension in the room as the disciples just sit there in shock. But... Christ in his perfect love does not leave them there, but immediately comforts them. And we can derive great comfort from the same words today. So as we move through chapter 14, we will be looking for three actions in our passage that Christ carries out, resulting in peace in our lives. We're going to look at Christ's assurances. They're all A's, actions. So they start with an A. Christ's assurances, Christ's abiding, and Christ's affirming. Don't worry if you didn't get it. We'll say it again as we move through. But number one on your outlines, let's first look at Christ's assurances. So Christ knows the emotions roiling under the surface in his disciples' hearts, just as much as he knows our hearts today. He wastes no time in telling his disciples words of assurance. He started with... A, our current hope, our current hope. Look down at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So Christ lays out why the disciples are not to be troubled. Now, does he say, do not be troubled, your faith is strong? Or does he say, don't worry? Be happy. No. 
What does he put the foundation of the disciples not being troubled on? A belief in God and a belief in himself. He is the reason the disciples were not to be troubled. He is the reason that they could have hope and that we can have hope as well. So that word heart there, let not your heart be troubled. It's of the soul as the seed of the sensibilities, the affections, the emotions, the desires, the appetites, the passions. And here it's in reference to grief and pain and anguish. That word troubled there is to strike one's spirit with fear or dread, to stir or agitate. You think of a rolling boil. So when we have a recipe, ladies, as we're cooking, and it says, bring the water to a roiling boil. Does that mean the little tiny bubbles that just go boop on the surface? No, we're talking turbulent. I actually looked up a roiling boil is one, a boiling that is vigorously or turbulently and cannot be disrupted or stopped by stirring. So it's this inner roiling. And we can almost imagine that acid in the disciples' stomach at a roiling boil right at this moment. But it's right at this moment that Christ commands, not asks, this is an imperative command, not to be troubled. But ladies, what does this verse tell us? What are we to do instead of being troubled? We are to believe. Now, in the New Testament, this means the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of his soul. In this verse, it's used especially of the faith by which a man embraces Jesus. It's a conviction full of joyful trust that Jesus is the Messiah the divinely appointed author of eternal salvation in the kingdom of God, conjoined with obedience to Christ. So all this is encapsulated into that word believe. The expositor's Bible commentary said, do not give way to disturbing thoughts. Do not suppose that only failure, disgrace, helplessness, and calamity await you. Trust God in this, as in all matters. He is guiding and ruling and working his own good ends through all present evil. Trust him, even though you cannot penetrate the darkness. It is his part to bring you successfully through. It is your part to follow where he leads. Do not question and debate and vex your soul, but leave all to him. Psalm 42 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. I loved that verse so much. Psalm 42 was almost our lesson this morning. But John 14 just barely beat it out. I really struggled for a while between the two. It was going to be either John 14 with Psalm 42 supporting or the other way around. So um, I highly recommend to you, if you need more marination of the soul, if you need another scripture to meditate on this week, write down Psalm 42, go back to it, read it through. It's excellent. So as Christ's disciples, we are not to be troubled but believe in Christ as God's Messiah, as our current hope, as well as B, our future hope. So B on your outlines is our future hope. John 14, 2 to 3, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here Christ is kindly encouraging his father's followers with the reason he's going away. And it's a really happy one. He's going to prepare a place for them as well as those of us who are following Christ after them. 
so that we're dwelling places there. It's a stay, staying, abiding, dwelling, or an abode. This is also the Greek word used of the Holy Spirit when he dwells or has his abode in a believer. Now, ladies, those of us who grew up with the KJV and the word mansion is used, unfortunately, that is not the best rendering of this word. It's more like an apartment, a room, to be more European, a flat. So I'm sorry, but the song, You've Got a Mansion Just Over That Hilltop, not theologically sound, sorry. That's more health and wealth. That's not us. So, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, so there is room for all and a place for each of us. If not, I would have told you. That is, I would tell you so at once. I would not deceive you. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He is going to obtain for you a right to be there and to possess your place. So this language, ladies, would immediately remind the disciples of the three parts of a traditional ancient Jewish wedding, which has so much imagery woven throughout it. So a lot of times, the beginning ceremony is called the Shadukin. It's a time of mutual commitment. This refers to the preliminary arrangements prior to the legal betrothal. So traditionally, in preparation for the betrothal ceremony, the bride and groom are separ separately immersed in water and is a symbol symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. Then the arusin happens. Now this is the legal betrothal. So after that immersion, the couple enters the huppa, or the marriage canopy, symbolic of a new household being planned to establish a binding contract. Here, the groom would give the bride money or a valuable object such as a ring and a cup of wine was customarily shared to seal their covenant vows. In this public ceremony under the hoopah, the couple entered into the betrothal peerage, period, which typically lasted for about a year. Although they were considered married, they did not live together or engage in sexual relations. To annul this contract, though, the couple would need a religious divorce, which had to be initiated by the husband. During the Arusin period, the groom was to prepare a place for his bride, while the bride focused on her personal preparations, her wedding garments, her lamps, etc. Although the bride knew to expect her groom after about a year, she did not know the exact day or hour. He could come earlier. It was the father of the groom who gave the final approval for him to return to collect his bride. For that reason, the bride kept her oil Lamps ready at all times, just in case the groom came in the night, sounding the shofar or the ram's horn, to lead the bridal procession to the home he had prepared for her. Then the nesuin would happen, the actual marriage. The final step in the Jewish wedding tradition is called the nesuin, which means to take, a word that comes from naso, which means to lift up. At this time, the groom, with much noise, fanfare, and romance, carried the bride home. Once again, the bride and groom would enter the hoopah, that marriage um, ceremony tent, recite a blessing over the wine, which was a symbol of joy, and finalize their vows. Now, finally, they would consummate their marriage and live together as husband and wife, fully partaking of all the duties and privileges of the covenant of marriage. Likewise, the Messiah, Christ as the bridegroom, has gone to prepare a place for us. So not only is Christ our current hope, our future hope, he is also, see, our provided path. Look down at verse 4. Christ says, and you know the way where I am going. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not only is Christ the reason we should not be troubled, but he is also the way that we are able to believe this current hope and this future hope. We would have no hope if Christ had not made a way and given us his life so that we would know the truth and be able to stand before the Father. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is only of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans 5.2 says, Through whom, meaning Christ, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. So Christ gave his assurances of our current and future hopes and our provided path to the Father. The next action of Christ that he carries out is number two on your outlines, Christ's abiding. Christ's abiding. Look down at verse seven. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So Christ here is letting his disciples know he is the direct expression of his Father. Colossians 1, 15 through 16 says, He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So here in verse 7, he's communicating to his disciples the realities that A, Christ was abiding with his father or with the father. But in verse 8, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, I don't wonder if he had the Mount of Transfiguration in the back of his mind. You know, Peter, uh, Peter, James, and John got to go up and see something special. So, And Philip, when you see him, he's terribly practical. Every time he's speaking, he is a man of practicality. He also is the disciple that at the feeding of the 5,000 brought forward and let Christ know they didn't have enough to feed everybody. So here he is, just that practical man. Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. I do hear a heart in the right place, but he's not perceiving with spiritual eyes. So notice that both Thomas and, and Philip, they don't seem to have any hesitation to ask questions or to make a comment on what Christ is, is speaking. There seems to be that closeness of relationship and a level of comfort in which they feel safe to bring their questions to him. Jesus is the ever-patient teacher and guide, and he is patient with us too. Look back down at 9 and, and see what, what Christ reveals to Philip. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, when he says this word, works here, he's referring to his miracles, which established that he is God's Messiah, that, that God had promised since Genesis 3.15. He's directly telling his disciples again that he is the one God has promised throughout the centuries. 
what the disciples are about to experience that night, it will make them want to doubt who Christ is. Their circumstances are about to dramatically change. Christ is preparing them for that time and beyond. Look back down at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Now, ladies, whenever Christ says, truly, truly, we need to stop. We need to put a star by it. We need to pay attention. This is a Jewish way of calling attention to a chosen topic. If he repeats, truly, truly, it means this is true. This is firm. That, that there are no greater, excuse me. So he's saying the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these. Well, what could be greater than feeding the 5,000 or raising Lazarus from the dead? What works could be greater than that? But ladies, the changing of a heart, the transformation. There's no greater miracle than the gospel going forth through broken vessels and God being pleased to use broken vessels to declare his word and to pray and work through those prayers of broken vessels. This is the means in which he changes lives and hearts. So ladies, is that more incredible? than all the other miracles that Christ did. Yes, those were visual miracles. We could see that happening and it was supernatural and it affirms Christ's deity. But it is as much of a miracle when our hearts are changed, when we are transformed to the image of Christ. God continues to use us to share the good news of Christ. God used the disciples to share the gospel he redeemed thousands in a day. Amazing. More amazing than just physical food. He is sending out spiritual food and awakening all those hearts and lives. So God, God guys, gals, <laughs> my up north coming out. We call everybody guys. <laughs> so God is going to continue to use us to share the good news of Christ. So, do we view it as the privilege and the miracle that it is? Or do we avoid it? Do we fear it so much? Sharing your faith with others is only hard, again, because of what Yvonne shared with us last week. That pesky fear of man. But if we abide in Christ... Our heart for him will, and our love for him will overflow. It becomes part of our natural conversation. We will so long to see him honored and glorified. And we'll see, we will see people as souls that desperately need him. As we grow in our knowledge of Christ through his word, it will be easier to know what to say. And ladies, it just takes practice. We just have to go out there and do it. Share it. Little ways, big ways, leave a tract. Give a praise to the Lord to somebody you don't even know. Our cute little cashiers at Walmart, Target, or wherever you're at, if you have a cashier. Just the, <laughs> the interaction with our everyday people. Take little opportunities, take big opportunities. Pray for those opportunities. And view it as a privilege. God's not going to bring anything into your path that you can't overcome by the Spirit's power. And yeah, you might get stuck. You might not know what to say. But you can pray. Is God not able to use broken vessels for His honor and glory? Yes, He is. Are you a broken vessel? Yes, you are. Glory in God. He can use you. So as we think through all these things, we need to implant that deeply into our heart that we would long to do those things, that we would long to share Christ. 
the statistics, honestly, of conservative evangelicals who admit whether they share their faith or not is kind of depressing. So let's us be women of the word who long to share his word with others. Let's look down, back down at, at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that in my name probably means both praying both according to his will and with the invocation of his name. But you need to notice that purpose clause in verse 13. Anytime you see a so that, God is about to reveal the purpose behind that. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Not so that we can be happy. Or not so that we can have wealth and prosperity. So how do we pray? Has your prayer life improved at all because of this study? Are, are you learning that one of the keys to not being anxious is trust in our Lord? And we communicate that trust by pouring out our hearts to him in prayer, asking for things according to his will and patiently waiting until he answers grounding our minds in the truth that he will weave all the things in our life for our good and his glory. Looking back down at 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So Christ is abiding with his Father as well as be with us through the Holy Spirit with us through the Holy Spirit. Look back down on 17. That is the spirit of truth, whom the Lord can, excuse me, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That word orphans there is comfortless in a bereaved and desolate condition. Christ is comforting his disciples. Even though he is leaving, he is not deserting. Yes, he is to go back to the Father because that is the plan, but he's not deserting them. He is sending another comforter, a helper, that he will be with us forever. The spirit of truth MacArthur said in our chapter this week, unless we walk by the Spirit, our means of controlling the flesh, we are open season to all kinds of anxieties, the dread of the unknown, the fear of disease and death. This unfortunate process begins when we stop focusing on our permanent condition in Christ, who will certainly bring us into his glory and when we start basing our happiness on the fleeting things of the world, thus, if we continue to rely on worldly things, which by definition will always change, we will spend our lives in distress. Ladies, we have to be filled with the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, know that our obedience is empowered by the Spirit. There's a delicate balance between dependence and duty. Both walk hand in hand. We are responsible to obey. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's okay. We are responsible to obey, and yet there's that tension of, but I can't do anything that is not empowered by God's Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who will be my helper. It is the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth. And he abides in me. What a miracle. He abides in me. That's how I can abide in Christ. Because he has given me a helper in the Holy Spirit. Look at 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because... I live, you will, 
Let me read that again. Because I live, you will live also. So there, Thomas Watson said, the world will no longer see me. That means his bodily presence being all the side of him which the world ha ever had or was capable of. It saw him no more after his departure to the Father. But by the coming of the Spirit, the presence of Christ was not only continued to his spiritually enlightened disciples, but rendered far more effective and blissful than his bodily presence had been before the Spirit's coming. What a treasure, ladies, that we are New Testament believers, that we have been given this precious gift. Verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So that phrase, in that day, Christ is probably speaking of the day of Pentecost, which is coming. So the disciples, after going through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, they will know Christ is in his Father, and we are in Christ, and Christ is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what does abiding in Christ look like? We see it at the beginning of the next chapter in chapter 15. He says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So Christ is abiding with his Father and with us, which, see, abiding in Christ results in obedient living. Obedient living. Look back down at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So that word disclose there means to manifest, to exhibit to view, properly to present oneself to the side of another. So metaphorically, Christ is giving evidence by the action of the Holy Spirit on the souls of the disciples that he is alive in heaven. So he's giving them that seal, that reassurance. He is alive in heaven. We go on. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Ladies, that word abode, the same word in verse number one, that dwelling places, abode, same Greek word. So they will make their abode in us. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. We will come and make our abode with him. Now, often, ladies, do we not, again, that tension between the dependence and the duty. We have a duty to obey Christ, his commandments, his word. But do we not struggle in that? John Snyder, in a very helpful little podcast I watched of his, he said it's almost as though we're looking down that path. Christ has provided a path for us. We're, we're almost like a toddler learning to walk on that path. So does a waddler, a, a waddler, they are a waddler, but does a toddler just jump up and walk? Now, some of our kids did, but not with perfection. When they're learning to walk, what does it look like? If we were to see the footprints of a toddler going down that path, what would it look like? We would have some weaving going on, kind of straying off the path and then getting back on. We got some wobbly steps. We might see an area where we can tell, ooh, that toddler fell, and he fell hard, and yet was picked up and put back on the path to continue on. Are we not like that, ladies? 
as we're learning that path of obedience to Christ, we weave back and forth. But hopefully as we mature, those straying from the path, almost like Christian, quick back on the path. So as we think through these things, even though our steps are weak or wobbly or if we fall, we are always picked back up, set back on that path so that we can continue going. There is forward progress in our movement. Look back down at 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. John MacArthur says, if you've lost God's peace, peace in your life, you can find it again. Retrace your steps by trusting God in everything, turning away from sin and walking in obedience, enduring his refining work in your life, doing what is good, and living by the word of God in a righteous way. So Christ's actions so far have been his assurances and his abiding. And now three ladies, we're going to see that final action. Christ's affirming. Christ's affirming. Now, by affirming, I mean his support or his encouragement. So what affirmation is he giving to his disciples? A, he is giving the affirmation of the Spirit's coming. The Spirit's coming. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The disciples here are fearing the fact they're losing their teacher. They've had all these questions. Their steps have been way, way wobbly as they're trying to follow them. There's so many times, ladies, we see these sweet men who are following Christ not get it at all. Think of the parable of the soils and the hearts. They come to him going, what does that mean? We see them in the boat, and they're fearing for their lives. And what does Christ have to tell them? Oh, you of little faith. We see Peter. He at least got out of the boat walking towards Christ. And as he's looking at Christ, he's fine. But what happened immediately as he watched the waves around him? He immediately sinks, and Christ saves him. So we see these disciples, but are we not the same? And here, they're like, what are we going to do? You're going you're to leave us? Who, who's going who's gonna to explain things to us? We can't do it without you. So here, much fear as they're losing their teacher. But Christ is saying he is going to send another helper and teacher. And this teacher will dwell in them and with them forever. For the disciples specifically, the Holy Spirit will call things to memory as they write their firsthand witness, which will become much of the New Testament, or as they share the gospel with others, or as they defend their faith. For us, the Holy Spirit illumines scripture and empowers us to obey what we are reading, as well as bringing words to mind to say as we're giving witness of Christ and the amazing miracles he's done in our own heart, how he has transformed us, how he has scrubbed away all the dross that the fiery furnace brings up to the top, and he's constantly having to just scrape it away. And yet, what an encouragement. Ladies, he's scraping it away. Is that painful sometimes? Yes. But it's a necessary process that we have to walk through to look more and more like Christ. Um, Chris uses the illustration, we come bent, do we not? And he straightens us. That's always stuck with me. So Christ affirms the Spirit's coming as well as be the peace only he gives. The peace only he gives. Verse 27 there. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
So as the Prince of Peace, one of the commentaries said, as the Prince of Peace, he brought it into flesh, carried it about in his own person. He says, my peace. He died to make it ours, left it as the heritage of his disciples upon earth, implants and maintains it by his spirit in their hearts. So just so we have a clear understanding of what this piece is, I did love the definition that MacArthur gave us in our chapter. He defined that kind of peace as an attitude of heart and mind when we believe and thus know deep down that all is well between ourselves and God. Along with it is the assurance that he is lovingly in control of everything. And ladies, vital word, lovingly in control. There is a grand difference between somebody who's in control of a sensuation and somebody who is lovingly in control of a situation. So John Snyder gave the example of this as a tent or a house, as we think through these things, as we have this peace, as we are thinking through this kind of peace. He said, oftentimes you can think of a tent or a house. And you can have a tent. And if, if you're maybe not really into constructing very complex things, you can get one of those fun little dome tents that just boop, pop up and they're there. And if you're anything like me, the last time you put it away, you might have lost the tent peg. So you just boop, pop it up and say, ah, it'll be good enough. And so you lay it out and maybe you have to go away for a moment, maybe to go you know, grab some chocolate at the store or something like that. And then the winds, like we've had these crazy last couple of days come. I mean, it's East Tennessee, you never know. Blink and the weather will change. I love it. But you come back, what happens to that tent because it's not been grounded into the ground with tent pigs? Blown away, flipped on its side probably torn apart. We've had a couple storms. We used to do um, BYBC, Backyard Bible Club. And one of the reasons we started moving it here is we had more than once that a storm would rip through on a Friday. We'd have to cancel BYBC. We've had it where it has ripped tents and thrown it into like two or three neighbors down the street yard. So we were like, hmm. Not super safe for the kids. We moved it here. So at least we could keep going with BBS. But it's that kind of thing when the storms of life come. Have we just taken that truth, not really implanted it deep, just kind of set it up? We love it. We embrace it. But it's not firmly planted into our hearts and into our minds. Or are we like a house? So with these winds, ladies, were any of you truly afraid that your house was going to fall down in it? No. Why? Because we know we have footers. A lot of times there's rebar in those footers. It's built on a foundation. It is deep into the ground. That is how we are to implant these truths. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now Christ in that verse says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So ladies, have you ever looked maybe online or other places to see what kind of peace does our world offer to us? Let me tell you what, go online. Well, actually don't because it's a waste of time. But if you go online and you type in how to find peace, literally just how to find peace, whoo, what you get in return is quite educational. I will tell you most of it is directly, they won't say it, but it is directly mired in Eastern mysticism animism, spiritual, you know, garbly gook, but it is not biblical. So as an example, I did pull out one, one gal's um, article 
Uh, this is how you find peace. So I'm going to read through her different steps of finding peace. And then I'm going to read for you because at the end it's hard to go back. So I, as we're going, I'm going to give you the biblical. I'm going to read hers. And then I want you to listen and see if you can think of or pinpoint that's off. And then I'm going to read you a scripture that helps us think biblically about that, okay? Okay, so here we go. How does our world tell us how to get peace? She starts off the article, we must find peace from within. Hmm. When you carry peace within you, you have the ability to remain calm and joyful at all times, regardless of outside circumstances or what life offers you at any given moment. Here are some definitions of inner peace. Number one, inner peace means being mentally and spiritually at peace. This is just the introduction, and we'll get into her steps towards peace. So for her, inner peace means being mentally and spiritually at peace. You're like, okay, not much there. Inner peace means freeing your mind from worry and negative thoughts. That sounds okay. Inner peace is a state in which the mind is quiet and serene. Mm -hmm. Inner peace is having the ability to connect to the supreme self, which is eternally at peace. Ladies, if you ever read the term supreme self, run. That is Eastern mysticism. So they believe each one of us have divinity within us. And it is in all of us, and it is in all that is around us. So again, namaste. The divinity within me acknowledges the divinity within you. Be so very careful. There is so much wrapped into that phrase, supreme self. Okay, inner peace may seem to be a lofty goal, but it's a state of being that's attainable for all of us. Below you'll find six ways to achieve inner peace. Okay, so these are her ways, the world's ways of finding inner peace. Number one, accept what is. Whatever is happening in the present moment, say yes and surrender to it. Don't resist it, don't struggle against it, and don't try to argue with it. The present is already here, and it is what it is. When you struggle with the way things are now, you're struggling with the entire universe. Hmm. What does scripture say about that? Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will, God, according to his will among the host of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Also, Romans 8, 28, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There is not a nebulous universe that we're struggling against. There is a supreme being that we bow before because he is king of heaven and earth. Heard number two, practice non Judgment. This is a big one. You'll read this all over the place. The moment in which you start judging whatever is happening to you and labeling it as bad, unfair, and so on, you put yourself in a cell. You can free yourself from your self-made prison by practicing non-judgment. So basically, even if something happens to you, no judging. So it's like, it is what it is. I'm not going to call it bad. I'm not going to call it good. It just is what it is. What does 2 Corinthians 12, 9 say? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more. This is Paul boasting all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. Psalm 119, 71 it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So we need to know why things are happening to us. We don't glide through life, oh, it is what it is. No, 
There is purpose behind it. There is a plan behind it. There is a creator who set this out before the foundations of the world. Okay, each one of these can just be whew, a lesson. Transform, her number three, transform your addictions into preferences. And an addiction is any desire that makes you upset or unhappy if it's not satisfied. By transforming your addictions into preferences, you will no longer feel restless and unhappy if your desires are not realized. And this leads to peace of mind. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, number four, she says, teach your mind to become still. A turbulent mind cannot be at peace. We need to teach our mind to move from turbulence to tranquility. The way we do this is through the practice of meditation. She describes meditation as you can begin to meditate by closing your eyes and focusing on your breath. While a mind that jumps indiscriminately from thought to thought is stressed and agitated, a mind that is still is at peace. So you're just supposed to focus on that breathing and that's it. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Remember, as a Christian, our greatest success is bearing fruit for the glory of God, not getting our way or becoming wealthy. <clears throat> so, in striving to meditate, John MacArthur, actually in the back of your books, gave us an assignment, and that was memorizing scripture. So that is why I made you a memory card. And of course, we like pretty things. So... If you're going to look at something, it might as well be pretty while you're looking at it, right? So, um, so that's what this is for. I want to equip you to give you something in your hands that you immediately this week can start memorizing, can start meditating on it, start applying it to your life. That, again, we don't empty our minds when we meditate. We fill our minds with the word of God. That's the main difference. Number five, she says, practice mindfulness. A mind at peace is in the here and now. It's not thinking compulsively about the past and the future. You can bring your attention back to the place, the present moment, by, she says, feel the aliveness in your body. Take a moment to feel gratitude, which is interesting to me. Over and over, to, again, the different websites I read talked about gratitude, but never to whom. If you're grateful, you have to be grateful to somebody. But they never say that. They just say, just be grateful. How does that help? So what does the word of God, it's, she says, allow your mind to find harmony with the present moment. True peace arises in the now. No. Psalm 119.15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 119.165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. So number six, she says, use your willpower to choose thoughts that make you feel at peace. She lists some. I'm not going to go through them all. But at the end, she says, keep telling yourself that you can always choose thoughts that will bring you inner peace. Your own willpower, you choose. But Thomas Watson said in our book, the wicked may have something which looks like peace, but it is not. They may be fearless and stupid. Stupid meaning simple. Remember, he's from eons ago. He's a Puritan. So stupid back then meant simple. Fearless and stupid, but there is great difference between a stupefied, a simple conscience, and a pacified conscience. This is the devil's peace. He rocks men in the cradle of security. He cries, peace, peace when men are on the precipice of hell. The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, from the ignorance of his danger. So each of these worldly ways to find peace is wrapped around who? Me. I can do this. I can choose. I have willpower. I, 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 me. 
That is not peace. And if, it, if they find some semblance of peace, it's not true peace and definitely completely self-centered and exalting self. Titus 2.11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are not to live to exalt self, but to live godly lives, knowing we are bondservants of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will come again. So Christ affirmed the Spirit's coming and the peace only he gives, as well as see what is to come. Verse 28, you heard that I say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father command, commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So Christ is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen with his arrest, trial, and death. Their calm, peaceful moment with their teacher is in a few hours going to break out into chaos with his arrest. But in his loving compassion, Christ tells them ahead of time, why? Why does it say in our passage? So that you may believe. Christ assured, abides, and affirmed his disciples just as he does for us today. John MacArthur closed our chapter with this. God's grace saves us, helps us cope with our anxieties, equips us for service, and enables us to grow spiritually and to be rich in God. Like God's peace, the conditions for receiving it are trusting God, turning from sin, and during the refining process, doing good and living by the word, as we are what we ought to be, God infuses us with his peace and grace. And that is a wonderful way of crowding out anxiety.